But now you can see why John 7 is so important because it highlights the tension, the conflict that arises when the truth of Jesus goes against the falsehood of the world. When the love of Christ goes against the selfishness of the world. When the kingdom of God goes against the kingdom of darkness. There is going to be this tension. And it is no different today. Is Jesus the Messiah? In our 19th episode, tensions rise over this question as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast. Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel that he did not come to bring peace, but a sword, and that this sword would spur conflict amongst individuals, even members of the same household. So the tension that fills chapter 7 of John's Gospel should not surprise us, for at the center of this tension is the unavoidable Messiah question. Who do we say Jesus is? It's a question that is unavoidable because Jesus is the one who confronts us with it. Once confronted, a decision then has to be made. There is no middle ground. Either Jesus is the Messiah, or he is not. This is the dilemma we find in our lesson this week, as people wrestle with the Messiah question, inciting greater hostility from the religious leaders toward Jesus. Before we turn it over to Father Ward, we would like to say thank you for your time as you tune in each week. We pray you are blessed and encouraged by the content of this podcast. Please listen through to the end to learn how you can connect with this podcast and with all that is happening at St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church. And now, with this week's lesson in the Gospel of John, here is Father Ward. Verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now, no one right there is saying, and we want to kill you, Jesus. But what Jesus is doing is he knows the motivation of those who are after him. He knows that in their heart, they seek to kill him. And isn't it interesting? Because you remember, what did Jesus teach on the Sermon on the Mount? He knows the nature of man. Do you remember what he said? Do not say that thou has not committed murder and think that you have not disobeyed the law concerning that. If you are angry with your brother, if you hate your brother and you call them raka, fool, good for nothing, that didn't mean dunderhead. It meant that you were unsavable, that there was no hope in you, that you were condemning someone because of your hatred. You were cursing that person because of your hatred. Jesus is getting at the nature of man by saying that you really desire to kill me. You have a hatred against me that's going to lead you down that path. And and we find by the end of the chapter that's already being discussed. And then after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we read later in John 11 that that is when the leadership said, this is enough. If this continues, the whole world will go after him. And we read that they then purposely planned to arrest, have him Uh, to seize him and to have him executed. And so Jesus continues to confront them too. Not only does he address their motivations, knowing their hearts, but he is basically saying they're hypocrites. They know the law of Moses. They tell everybody to follow the law of Moses, but they don't really carry it out. Verse 20, The crowd answered, You have a demon. 
Who seeks to kill you? So they're like, hey, why are you accusing us? Jesus answered them, I did one deed and yet, and you all marvel. Now what deed was he referring to? We're going to see that the question Jesus addresses is the Sabbath. So he is going back to the miracle of the healing of the paralytic in John 5. Remember that? And that's when the authorities really got upset because he healed the man on the Sabbath. And so Jesus says, for this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. Now, what does that mean? Circumcision was part of the Mosaic law, but circumcision predated the Mosaic law. It went back to the time of Abraham. Remember, that was going to be the outward visible sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. And so circumcision was part of the people of faith from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It predates Moses. So Jesus, you're going to see why Jesus is doing this now. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. In Leviticus, it says that a baby is to be circumcised on the eighth day. So if a baby was born on the Sabbath, it would mean that the baby would be circumcised on the Sabbath. Circumcision, which predates the Mosaic law, was allowed, even though it would be technically work on the Sabbath. And remember, they added all these different functions. So what Jesus is saying is if you allow circumcision on the Sabbath, which is part of the covenant, that only affects one a member of the body, one member of the body, right? Why are you getting all upset that I'm making a whole man whole, healing a man on the Sabbath? That's just messed up. That's messed up religion. So let's continue. I'm kind of jumping the gun here. Verse 23, If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be... Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? So, they're not breaking the law of Moses... Although with all their new added laws, technically they would be, and yet they allow it because they understand the greater purpose to it. Same with Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. And then Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. It harkens back to 1 Samuel 16, 7, when God and Samuel was to pick uh, a successor to Saul And God said to Samuel, don't judge by outward appearances as man does. I judge, God doesn't judge by outward appearance. He judges what's in the heart. Only God knows ultimately what's in the heart. And what Jesus is most concerned about is is what is in people's heart, not simply the outward obedience to the law. Verse 25, so some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? So now we have folks understanding that there are, again, remember, this isn't just happening in like one hour time. This is over a period of days. And people are getting wind that the authorities are opposing Jesus and may be seeking to kill him. And yet Jesus is still speaking publicly. Look, verse 26, he is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. Whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Now, that indicates that there probably was a tradition or an idea, even though it says specifically that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. There was a tradition that the Messiah would just come out of nowhere. I mean, just kind of come and no one would really know where he came from. And that's probably what this was a reference to. However, we know where this man is from. They all knew he was from Galilee. 
But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I'm from. And I have not come on myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize Jesus, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So even though there was increasing turmoil, even though you had these leaders that were seeking to arrest Jesus, it wasn't his time yet. There were many occasions where they were ready to take him. It highlights that if we're under the sovereign plan of God, we don't have anything to fear. God is in control. If it is your time, it is your time. Do you know how much energy is spent when people worry, when they get on a plane or when they do this or that? Is this going to be my time? It's ridiculous. A person of faith understands as you grow in faith. God's got it under control. Now, that doesn't mean we do stupid things. You know, you don't skydive without a parachute because you're under God's timetable, you know? Then we read here, verse 31, but many of the crowd believed in him. So there were those who were believing. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? So in other words, Jesus was doing so many miracles and they were so amazing that people understood that this has to be the Messiah. I mean, what more can we expect? And then when he raises Lazarus from the dead? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? Now this is incredible irony. This is just, this is just great. First of all, what Jesus actually was talking about was that he's going to the Father. He said the same thing to his Disciples, remember on the, on the night he died? And, and we can't go there, right? We don't have that power. We don't have that authority. Eventually we will after we die. But even then, you know, the, Jesus has an intimate relationship with the Father. And so the Jews, in trying to figure this out, were saying, well, he doesn't mean going to the Gentiles, right? Nah. A, this shows how exclusive they became in their thinking. They didn't want to have anything to do with the Gentiles. They looked down on the Gentiles. They judged the Gentiles. They said, oh, they're no good. But the irony is that actually Jesus ended up going to the Gentiles, didn't he? The irony is by the time John was writing this gospel, the gospel was being preached throughout the Roman Empire. And there were many Gentile churches. And so these Jews who were thinking it absurd for him even going to the Gentiles, actually Jesus ended up reaching the Gentiles. Pretty neat how John includes this in here. Verse 36, What is this statement that he said, You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. 
Now, do you remember when he spoke this before? With the Samaritan woman, right? He was simply quoting Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3. I just put 1, but it's really 1 through 3. We looked at these verses when we studied chapter 4. Let's look at them again. Isaiah 55. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. So right there, this is a wonderful imagery of God providing everything we need. It's a gift. We didn't have to pay for it. We didn't have to work for it. It's just given to us. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? That is a rebuke of materialism. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. What's the abundance? In the abundance of the Lord, of knowing God, of walking with Him. Verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. That's pointing to the covenant, the new covenant we have in Jesus. Isn't that awesome? So what Jesus was simply doing was saying that he's the fulfillment, he is the source, he's the means of this promise. But notice too, what's important, let let me just finish this, uh, okay, verse 39, but this Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Remember, Jesus says that I'm going to send you another comforter. And he's going to take from me and disclose it to you. And he's going to be with you forever, the Holy Spirit. But that isn't fully poured out until after the resurrection. But notice what is so important. When Jesus says, come, you who are thirsty. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That simple statement highlights the three aspects of salvation. If anyone is thirsty, you have to recognize your need. That there is a need. You need to come. You have to make a decision. You have to have a desire. Actually, there's four things now. I think I'm coming up with a force, right? You have to acknowledge your need. You have to have then the desire to correct that or to fill that need. You have to go to the right source. And then you have to drink. So what does that mean spiritually? Recognize that we're sinners, poor in spirit, we're nothing without God. Having the desire to do something about it, come. Knowing that it is only in Jesus, as she's going to say, what did he say? He who believes in me. So we have to trust in Jesus. And then the drinking is, it's something we receive. And we receive the Holy Spirit. We're born again. So you see in that simple statement, it sums up the whole experience of entering into salvation and receiving abundant life in Christ. And it is tangibly demonstrated again in communion. For when we drink of the cup, the blood of Christ, it points to his death on the cross. But it also points to the Holy Spirit that we have, his water, the Holy Spirit. We come by virtue of the Holy Spirit and we're drinking. We're doing something tangibly. We're worshiping before the Lord, honoring what He has done for us in Christ. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Again, a reference to the prophecy from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Some thought the prophet was another figure, the prefigures Messiah. Others understood that it was the Messiah. We know from Acts, from Peter's sermon, that 
that was fulfilled in Jesus. The prophet is the same as the Messiah. But people were still not sure at that time because, again, you had a lot of different opinions. So some others were saying this is the Christ or the Messiah. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Remember, Galilee was looked at as the Hickville, you know. I'm not going to say which state, but uh, if there were the states of the United States. But you know, you know what I'm getting at. Redneck country. Verse 42. Has not the scriptures said, or scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendant of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now, all they had to do was ask Jesus. All they had to do was a little research to find out that he actually was born in Bethlehem. But they weren't concerned with finding the truth. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. So remember how Jesus originally said, you desire to kill me? You can see the hatred being now more fully expressed. That the religious leaders look down on the crowds. They look down at them as a bunch of ignorant fools. They consider them cursed, and yet they're the true ignorant ones for not even recognizing Jesus for who he is. Nicodemus, the same Nicodemus that we found in chapter 3, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So we can see that faith is being stirred up and is growing in Nicodemus. Nicodemus had come to Jesus by cover of darkness, had inquired about who Jesus is and what he was about, and so he is he's there kind of sticking up for Jesus, and yet you can see that the spirit of the group as a whole, the religious leadership, is hostile to Christ and his witness. And I want you now to go back to verses 15 and and 16. And you're going to see how Jesus testifies to who he is and why he is the Messiah. First of all, in verses 15 and 16, notice it says, The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So the first thing that reflects Jesus' deity, of him saying, Why I am who I say I am, is that he's got this supernatural knowledge that comes from the Father, that comes from God. It doesn't come from man. It's not man-sourced. It's not earthly-sourced. Second, his teaching and knowledge could be confirmed by testing. Look at verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. One of the ways that I, we can tell people to determine if Jesus is true 
is test what he says. Test it out for yourself. The beautiful thing about God's Word is that its principles work. Its principles lead to purpose. Its principles lead to peace. Its principles lead to joy. Its principles lead to true love. Its principles lead to a greater understanding and wisdom. So Jesus said, hey, test it. That's why Jesus says you can determine if something is good or bad just as you can determine whether fruit on a tree is good and bad. Or, I'm sorry, you can determine a tree whether its fruit is good or bad, right? Test to see what is the person, how is the person living? How is the person acting? What is the person doing? What is the person saying? And ultimately, what do they say about Jesus? That's how you test things. All right, third, his actions demonstrated selflessness. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him. He is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So I already spent a lot of time on that earlier. But it's, again, it's all selflessness. His impact on the world was startling. Verses 19 through 20, Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? So in other words, there was wherever, that was kind of a negative, a negative, Jesus stirred it up, but wherever Jesus went, People were astonished. People were amazed. I mean, there was never a dull moment. And certainly you could add, in terms of his impact, you could add all the signs, all the miracles. And then finally, his deeds demonstrated his identity as the Son of God. Let's look at verses 21 through 24. Jesus answered them and said, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Uh, I'll just go down to verse 24 because we already went over that. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So he was righteous. And you could add other verses to those five points. But those are five main points that demonstrate his uh, deity. So we began the study talking about how John 7 is one of those chapters that kind of gets lost in the shuffle because so many of the other chapel, uh, chapters have key miracles, the I am statements, profound events. This is profound too. But now you can see why John 7 is so important. Because it highlights the tension, the conflict that arises when the truth of Jesus goes against the falsehood of the world. When the love of Christ goes against the selfishness of the world. When the kingdom of God goes against the kingdom of darkness, there is going to be this tension. And it is no different today. We are in the same situation. The only difference is the players have changed. But Jesus is still here. He is still alive and well. But thankfully now, He's around the world through His church. And we have the opportunity to not only appreciate what we have in Christ, but understand that what we have in Christ is because of who He is, and that because we've been blessed with such a great treasure, such a great salvation, and the ultimate gift of knowing God personally, 
we now have an obligation to make the most of our days and to make sure that we are letting others know about his love. That's kind of what comes out of John 7. And yet in the context, it's simply a precursor to the intensification of the conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities and the culmination of why he came, and that was to suffer and die on the cross and defeat death by taking death on himself. Let's pray. The Lord be with you. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for who you are and for your word and the opportunity we had to study it tonight. Help us to take it to heart. Help us to remember that we will be persecuted, but help us to seek to love others and and bear witness of who Jesus is in our lives. Uh, But help us not to be overwhelmed by the conflict we see around us and and the times uh, that we're in. Help us to uh, keep our focus on you. We pray for safe travel as we travel home. We pray for all our friends and relatives. We especially pray for those who do not know you, that they might come to a saving knowledge of you, Lord. We pray for those who are fighting illness. We pray for healing. And we pray that your perfect will would be accomplished in all our lives. We thank you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. For more information about the church, including a list of our service times, please visit our website at www.stbartston.org. Again, that's www.stbartston.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating or a positive review. Both will help in reaching more people with this podcast. If you're on Facebook, head over to facebook.com slash transforminglivestogetherpodcast and give us a like. And if you're an Amazon Alexa user, say, Hey Alexa, play the Transforming Lives Together podcast to hear the latest episodes. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Until then, we leave you with these verses from the Epistle of James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. God bless.